This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. That God has spoken to my heart that I really wanted to share with you, including this golden sentence from Hebrews chapter 10 this afternoon. We are in Hebrews chapter 10. We're reading verses 19 to 25 in the New International Version. It's, I think, three sentences, but this is all one very rich sentence in the original. Let's listen to the Word of God together. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. And just yesterday, the Baptist theologian Luke Stamps had a tweet, and he shared a very provoking thought. He said, what unifies your church is what you really worship. What unifies your church, what holds you all together, what you all consider important enough to set aside all other differences for, what unifies your church is what you really worship. I think that's actually a frightening word of judgment for much of the church today, churches who are really united based on Calvinism or Arminianism, speaking in tongues, the rapture, the state of Israel, progressive projects of social justice, refusing to get vaccinated, all these other things, some good, some bad, but not what we ought to be uniting around, certainly not what we worship. TICF is a very weird church, if you've been around more than a few weeks. This is an odd place and a very odd conglomeration of people. And we are men and women and children from many different nations and from many different Christian traditions. And we have nothing in common except for Jesus Christ. We unite around Jesus. He is our highest common denominator. And Jesus supremely is the one that we worship. And yes, there are many very interesting and very fascinating secondary topics, and I have to restrain myself sometimes. I'd much prefer to hold my cards close to my chest on a lot of issues so that I can preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, which honestly is the only thing that is going to feed our souls and the only thing worth listening to, the only thing worth preaching. 
And when my time here in Tbilisi winds up, whenever that is, I'm hoping that there's going to be a big portrait of Michelle and I in the, in the staircase. <laughs> I'm going to be wearing like a, a black suit and tie, looking very stern. Michelle's going to have like a big beehive haircut and horn room glasses. We're going to be very severe. And I hope, I hope that what I'm remembered for here is that I was a relentless preacher of Christ. That is all that matters. Jesus told the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that all of the scriptures point to Jesus. And if we pick up any place in the Bible and don't end up at Jesus Christ, we are missing the point of scripture, just as Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. We went through the book of 1 Samuel last year. I think we finished early this year. And through all those chapters, again and again, if you're paying attention, the final point was always Jesus. How does this story of Samuel or Saul or David ultimately point us to Christ? And sometimes that's a very quick and a very elegant and a very direct route. Sometimes, to be honest, I've been a bit like one of Tbilisi's Globo drivers, crossing the median, driving backwards on the highway, going up an an on-ramp, driving on the sidewalk, In the end, hopefully, getting to the destination, which is Jesus, the one we've all gathered for and whom we're gathering around. Thankfully, there's no wild globo driving needed with this text in Hebrews because, honestly, the the author has done pretty much all the work for me this afternoon. This text practically stands up on its hind legs and preaches itself. Three points of application, beautiful all arising out of the person and work of Christ. And in these seven verses, which form a single sentence, the unknown author to Hebrews has beautifully summed up his entire treatise. This whole book, which may well have been a sermon preached at one time, is a book celebrating the supremacy of the Son of God. Jesus is supreme over all. And the author to the Hebrews is writing to a church that is under siege. People who are feeling discouraged, despondent, worn out from the grind. Whose grip is loosening. They're ready to give up and drop out. And maybe you're pretty close to that point yourself this afternoon. When you first began to follow Jesus, your soul was full of fire for the Son of God, but as you've gone on in life and trudged on in the path of the cross, there's so much pressure, so many temptations, so many trials, and you feel weaker and weaker. And honestly, all of us feel tempted at different times to give up on Jesus and go elsewhere. The only cure for that, the only solution to that danger is to fix our eyes more firmly on Jesus. We need a greater vision of Christ. And just like Peter getting out of the boat, walking on the water, when he took his eyes away from Jesus, he began to sink. And we do the same when we begin to focus on the waves instead of the master of those waves. Fix your 
eyes on Jesus, the author tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. And he himself relentlessly directs our eyes to the Savior in chapter after chapter. You know what we do every week when we gather together? This is a time of reminding. There are very few new insights that we arrive at together. But again and again, we go back to the old, old story of Christ and him crucified. And we remind each other of everything that God has done for us in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we remind each other in song. We remind each other in, the, in Scripture, the reading of Scripture, in the sermon, in the sacrament, again and again. We remind each other of the riches that are in Jesus. And with the author to the Hebrews, we remind ourselves, as he says, that we have a better hope through better promises, resulting in a better covenant built on a better offering that speaks a better word and a better hope of a better possession in a better country, all through Jesus. And if you've ever worked your way through this letter, which I highly recommend you do, there's some pretty tough going in the ten and a half chapters that have preceded these verses. Some pretty, some pretty dense theology, some very intricate exegesis of texts from Leviticus and Psalms and Jeremiah and elsewhere. This guy is just working his way through the Old Testament. And all that spade work that he's done in those chapters, it's all been done to establish two great facts that stand as the double foundation for our faith. The two phrases that follow the word since in our text. The finished sacrifice of Christ and the eternal priesthood of Christ. The finished sacrifice, the eternal priesthood on these two pillars, our whole identity as a community and our whole life as Christians is built First of all, the author tells us, we have confidence, brothers and sisters, dear family of God, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. The most holy place, in case you're not totally up on your Old Testament this afternoon, was the inner sanctum of the temple, this dark, holy room covered in thick curtains, and once a year, and once a year only, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, clothed in his garments, having been ritually purified from his own sins, slipped through that curtain, his heart, no doubt, pounding in his chest to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. In the Old Testament, God the Creator, the one who says, I am who I am, he dwells among his people, but he is hidden and inaccessible. The tabernacle is there in the midst of the camp, but there are barriers after barrier around that tabernacle so that sinners do not face the holy presence of God and be destroyed. And now, gloriously, our author says, a new and living way has been opened up. A trail has been blazed into the presence of God through the blood, not of rams and bulls and goats, which could never take away sin, this new and living way has been opened up 
through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Christ. Blood is a symbol of violent death. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas in November 1962, his wife Jackie, the first lady, was sitting beside him, beside him in a pink imitation Chanel dress, and the blood, when his head basically exploded, spattered over her, her dress. And when she appeared on camera beside Lyndon Johnson as he, the vice president, was inaugurated, she refused to change her dress. And she said, I want everyone to see what they did to Jack. Blood is violent, and Jesus died violently. He didn't die a quiet, dignified death in a hospice unit, all hygienic and controlled with machines quietly pumping away as his family gathered respectfully around him. Jesus died violently. His life was ripped away from him in a judicial execution, torn from him in the most brutal way. And Jesus' death on the cross was the death of an evildoer and the death of a criminal. The death that every single person here, without exception, should have died ourselves as rebels against God and those who have sinned with a high hand against our holy creator. And the life that should have been torn from us was torn away from Jesus. The blood that we should have offered was given by Christ, the gift of the Father. Jesus died as our substitute, as our representative. He stood in our place. Not just to die, but to be slaughtered. Jesus was slaughtered. Because there was a divine purpose behind what the Roman soldiers were doing when they nailed Jesus through his hands and his feet and lifted, lifted him up on that cross of shame. There was a divine purpose. The hidden hand of God was at work offering his son as a spotless sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died voluntarily out of love to make atonement for the sinful people of God in the camp. And it is the blood of Jesus, the violent death of our Redeemer, that is what gives us all this afternoon the authorization to enter into the presence of God. We have confidence, the author says. We come with freedom and boldness, not in hesitation and timidity, afraid that the heavy hand of God is going to come down and smite us for the sin that troubles our conscience. All the guilt that haunts us has been taken away through Jesus, thoroughly dealt with, thoroughly dealt with, never to haunt us again. God doesn't just wish it away or sweep it under the rug where it might come back on the day of judgment. Our sin, our guilt, our shame is borne away and destroyed by the Lamb of God on the cross. 
there is nothing more important for us as Christians to grasp in our minds and our hearts than that. And if you're here exploring Christianity and groping your way towards God and trying to figure out what it means to have a relationship with your Creator, this is the way and the only way to come before God, offered to you just as freely as it is offered to all of us. And this is the reason we sing and we dance and we celebrate. The basis for our joy is the finished sacrifice of Jesus. It's not what our hands have done, all the things that we've sacrificed for God and all the commandments we've obeyed. It's the once for all, never to be repeated, completely satisfactory sacrifice of Jesus. That's what puts our feet on the rock and puts a new song in our mouths to praise our Savior and our Redeemer. The finished sacrifice of Christ. The first of those two foundations for our life as believers. But there is a second mighty foundation beside that. And that is the eternal priesthood of Jesus. Verse 21, the second since, the second reason for what follows. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. There's a danger if we only talk about the finished sacrifice of Jesus as though we somehow worship the cross of Christ and Jesus is just there to get the mechanism of salvation done. We do not worship a dead historical past event that just is there kind of inert in our minds. We see the cross only in the light of Easter Sunday. Jesus is no longer hanging from the cross, which is why as Protestants we have crosses and not crucifixes. Jesus is no longer suffering. He's no longer dying or dead. He has risen victorious, and he stands as our great priest. Jesus as priest is one of the great themes of the book of Hebrews. And if you'd flip back, you'd find chapter after chapter establishing and expositing and rejoicing in Jesus as our priest. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is fit to be our priest because he shares our humanity. He's not some weird alien creature, not something totally other. He is one of us. He's one of our people. In every single respect, other than sin, Jesus is a human being. And as our priest, he stands in complete solidarity with us. We can have total trust in Jesus as our priest to take on our interests because he's not some mercenary from somewhere else that we've hired to represent us. He is one of our own. And the interests of Jesus are fully enmeshed with all of our interests as human beings. He has solidarity with us. And Jesus, Hebrews says, has compassion on us in our weakness. If you feel weak today, Jesus has compassion on you. He's not shouting at you in rebuke with little bits of spit flying from his mouth. Jesus has compassion on you because he himself knows what it is to suffer weakness. He's been perfected through his sufferings as our priest, and now he has passed through the heavens. Jesus has ascended, and he sits at the right hand of God. And as 
our great high priest, Jesus rules over the whole house of God. All the sons and daughters of the king in heaven and on earth and throughout the world, all of us as worshiping priests in the temple of God, Jesus manages all of that and rules over all of us. And Jesus, even now, is carrying on his heavenly ministry as our mediator, as our intercessor. His living presence before the throne of God, beside the throne of God, guarantees our standing, our welcome, our eternal life. The finished sacrifice of Christ and the eternal priesthood of Christ change the entire shape and color of our lives. These two things define everything for us as Christians. And at this hinge in the letter, the author is moving from this rich, thick theology now to application. How does this change our lives? And you'll notice in, verses, in verse 22 and 23 and 24, there's this, there's this triple let us. Let us, let us, let us based on this double foundation of the finished sacrifice and eternal priesthood of Christ. The gospel of Jesus is not just an interesting collection of abstractions for us to chew our pencils over and write some interesting essays and finish some interesting degrees. The gospel of Jesus always leads to a transformed life. These realities... They seize us, and they make a claim on us. And when we put our faith in Jesus, in his finished sacrifice, and his eternal priesthood, we are swearing allegiance to him. And from that moment on, our entire lives belong to him. This gospel makes a claim on us, not just as individuals, but as a community, as the new family of God. And of course, this transformed life is only possible through the gospel. These are not what follows. They're not three moral exhortations that just hang in the air somehow, miraculously. What God is asking from you is deeply rooted in the saving work of Christ. And when we understand the gospel, when we have really taken it into our hearts, we cannot but rise up and respond in a life of worship to God. I want to be very clear that our obedience in no way is us pulling out our wallet and repaying God. Like when a friend invites you over for dinner and you feel obliged, I better invite them over within the next month or I'll feel like I'm in their debt. It's not that way at all. We can never reimburse God, nor does God want any of that. That is not why God is asking these things of us. In Psalm 116, the psalmist asks himself, how will I repay God for all his benefits? He says, I will lift up the cup of salvation. 
the only way we have to repay God, to honor and glorify and thank him for what he has done, is to drink more deeply of the wells of salvation, to absorb the gospel more fully into our hearts and into our lives. What I want to ask all of us this afternoon is this. Are we living in the good of the gospel? God has done great things for us, but are we actually living in the good of that? Or do we just have a big pile of checks that we've never bothered to cash? The Holy Spirit is inviting all of us this afternoon to appropriate and to apply all the benefits of Christ into our lives today. God is not asking you to pay him back. Okay, the grace is over. Now let's have some burden of works. God wants you to more fully experience grace, to more deeply absorb the good news into your life. That's why the first exhortation is, let us draw near to God. Jesus has made the way through his blood, through his body, the curtain that opens up into God's presence. But Jesus might as well have died for nothing if we don't actually walk that way and take that path and go through that curtain into God's presence. And God is exhorting and inviting all of us to go to him in prayer and worship. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We're invited to ascend the hill of the Lord with a true heart, Because you know what? Now that Jesus has done this for us, now that he lives to intercede for us, there's no need for hypocrisy, for disguise, for dissimulation. We can come as we are with true and open hearts. And we come with the full assurance that faith brings. The full assurance that we will never have based on religious works that we have done. Because you know what? No matter how good you are and no matter how much you sweat and toil, in the back of your mind, you wonder, is there some ritual that I might have missed? Did I get absolutely everything on the list? Have I done enough? Have I fulfilled the conditions? But when our eyes are on Jesus instead of ourselves, we can come with full, absolute, complete confidence that God's arms are opened and he will welcome us when we come to him. We come with our hearts sprinkled with the blood of Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, Exodus, I think, Moses sprinkled the people of Israel with the blood from the sacrifice when they renewed the covenant. And the 12 tribes stood there with their garments spattered with blood as a sign that they'd received the sacrifice. And what Moses did symbolically, Jesus does truly and really to our hearts. He takes his blood and his sacrifice and he covers us with it and he applies it to our own hearts and our own conscience. And then the cross is no longer something at a distance out there which 
is wonderful, but has nothing to do with me. It's actually been brought into our hearts. The medicine will do no good if it sits in the bottle on the shelf. Our guilty consciences must be cleansed, and we must be scrubbed clean. And Jesus doesn't leave us to do that ourselves. As our living, eternal high priest, he takes each of us one by one and cleanses us and purifies us and makes us ready to go into the presence of God. And as disciples of Jesus in baptism, our bodies have been washed with water, just like we baptized our young brother Luke a few weeks ago, this outward symbol of what is really happening within, the heart being made clean before God. Our guilt and shame washed away completely so that now we stand together, clothed in Christ as baptized, forgiven, purified, justified people. And we draw near together, lifting our hands in worship, coming together before the throne of grace in time of need. Let us draw near. Then we have a second exhortation in verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You know, like the original audience of this letter, we all have the temptation to allow our grip, which began with white-knuckled tightness to Jesus, begin to loosen and get slippery. And we all face the temptation to let go of our hope completely. And in this letter, the author reminds us, we have a firm hope, a steadfast anchor for the soul, a thick cable not going down to the bottom of the ocean, but upwards into heaven, into the Holy of Holies where Jesus is. And in this strange world of shifting values that we live in, there is one thing that is certain, that Christ is coming back to establish a new creation. In this world, Hebrew says, we have no lasting city, no place where we can settle and feel at home. All of us are expats. We're all wanderers, wondering where we belong. But we look forward to a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We will all die not having received the things that God has promised. We die in faith and hope. And this hope is not positive thinking or just some vague premonition. You know what? Things, I just feel like things are going to turn out okay in the end. This hope is based on the promises of God and on the character of the one who promises. Our hope is not something that's self-generated, that we manufacture ourselves. If we can just whip ourselves up into a frenzy of hope, we'll feel this hope. It's based on God and who God is. The God who cannot lie. The God who has given his own son as a guarantee of what he has promised. It is not my faith that is decisive. It is God's faithfulness. We do waver. All of us waver and wobble. God does not waver in his own determination 
to give what he has promised through Christ. God has no doubts. God has no second thoughts. He's not going to back out of what he has sworn to do. What he has said, he will do. And when we fix our hope on what God has promised, then and only then will we have the strength to persevere to the end. Not to be like those who fall away, and the longer you follow Jesus, the more you see that tragedy around you, to the right and to the left. We must fix our hope on what God has promised to do through Christ. You may, notice, you may have noticed so far in these verses that we're following this triad that you see in the New Testament so often of faith, hope, and love as the three virtues that sum up the whole Christian life. In verse 24, we have this third exhortation. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to emphasize that discipleship is social. John Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. We often imagine that all of us have our own little straw up to God, our own tiny little pipe. But no, it's one big pipe that we all share, receiving grace from God, lifting up our worship to God. All of this is communal. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to spur each other on. We're all in this together. Let us consider. You know, consideration, that, that implies some sustained mental focus, doesn't it? pulling out a pen and paper and doing some serious prayerful brainstorming, how can we spur one another on to love and good deeds? Not just on the impulse of a moment, but giving some really deliberate thought and attention to how we can help one another tangibly express the love that Jesus has shown for us all on the cross. How can we do that as a community? It's not my job alone to figure that out or the church staff that we pay to figure that out. It's a collective responsibility for us all to figure out how can we and how can I, I have a responsibility in this, how is God calling me to spur on my brothers and sisters around me to love and good deeds? We all share this ministry. And all this happens as we gather together as the body of Christ. Notice the condition, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. There's a danger for all of us of abandoning the family of God. Not necessarily deliberately. Notice this happens simply as a matter of neglect. Forgetting to meet, putting it as a lower priority, other urgent, important things 
crowd out meeting together, and then we realize we haven't seen the family of God for a long time together. We must be together as the body if we are to fulfill any of what God is calling us to do. And I think the author of this letter would say, if meeting together is not important to you, it's because you have not appreciated the finished sacrifice and the eternal priesthood of Christ. Because when you really get that into your soul, you realize that Jesus has redeemed me to put me in a family of other people that Christ has also died for and given his life for. And we welcome one another, we embrace one another as God in Christ has embraced all of us. You know, throughout this whole letter, there's this, there's this sober undercurrent of warning. Because we are all prone to have hearts that are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And not a single person here is exempt from that temptation and from that danger. And if you think that you stand, watch out that you don't fall. All of us are prone to wander away. All of us are prone to make shipwreck of our faith, speaking humanly, of course, at the level that we experience. And all of us could become the terrible cautionary tale. That is why we need each other. All of us need each other. Because on our own, our hearts become cold, and we forget, and we drift away. And then something happens when we gather, as I'm sure you've experienced Sunday after Sunday. You come in here, you come up the stairs, as Andrew yells at you and summons you up here, worship is starting, and you're feeling really crabby and kind of lousy about yourself. And then as our worship team leads us, you find your heart being stirred and strangely warms, and you find yourself experiencing the presence of God that was there all along, always there waiting for you in Christ, but you begin to appropriate it through your brothers and sisters, singing not just to God, but to you and encouraging you. Notice, we are all called to encourage one another. And I think we, most of us would say, I love coming to church to receive encouragement, to receive a blessing, to get something from God. But we also should be coming here in order to give encouragement, yeah? In order to give exhortation, in order to spur each other on in a grace-filled way. And I wonder if you're exercising that calling in your life. Because the ministry of exhortation is not limited by any means to whoever's standing here on stage or whoever's leading the Bible study or a small group. All of us have the calling to encourage one another. To direct each other's eyes to the finished sacrifice of Christ, to his eternal priesthood, to the promises of God which stand sure to the hope that is before us, to encourage each other as long as it is called today not to give up the hope that we have. And are you exercising that call? God has given all of us concentric circles of responsibility. 
If you're married, you have a calling to encourage your husband or your wife. If you have children, you have a calling to encourage, to exhort your children. If you have family, if you have friends, if you have a family of God, if you have a small group, you were called to encourage those people to speak the truth of the gospel into their lives as you're prompted by the Holy Spirit and as your heart is filled with love. And all the more so as you see the day approaching. As we feel the shadow of our returning Savior over us, as we realize time is short, this world is passing away, we're going to stand together before the judgment seat of Christ. We need to be encouraging each other with increased urgency and fervor. We want to be found faithful. We want to hear for ourselves Jesus' words, well done, good and faithful servant. But we also want to hear that spoken over the person on our right and on our left. And God has given you the awesome responsibility and the thrilling privilege of helping those around you on their pilgrimage to the heavenly city and to receive Jesus' own thanksgiving for how you have ministered the gospel in your own humble, incomplete way to those that he has put in your life. We're going to stand one day before Christ, the returning King. We're going to stand with confidence, I trust, based on his finished sacrifice and his continuing ministry as our eternal priest. We're going to stand, I hope, having the virtues of faith, hope, and love infused into our hearts and lives by the Holy Spirit, having lived, I hope, our lives out of the fullness of the gospel. Not as beggars who are always somehow living from hand to mouth when they're surrounded by God's bounty. Having lived out of all the good of the gospel. Having as far as it is possible for a human being on this earth to appropriate everything that Jesus has done for us and all that he is for us to apply that to our lives and to work it out in our hearts. There's no better way for you to honor God than to lay hold of his son with both hands. And let's pray now for the grace to do that with all of our hearts and all of our lives. Heavenly Father, we are profoundly grateful for the gift of your son for his declaration on the cross before he died, that it is finished. We thank you that there is a sacrifice that has been completed for us to which nothing needs to be added. We're thankful for the ever-living ministry of Jesus, our high priest, who even now is taking our prayers and our worship and making them acceptable to you, O Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us by your spirit the grace to take in all the good of the gospel, to work it into our hearts, 
to work it out in our lives among this community and into the world, O oh Lord. We pray this all with joy, with confidence, through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. We're going to stand and respond in worship, singing together that through the blood of Jesus... This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.